0: Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Frost. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life, our first ever podcast. Today I'm joined by the legendary Canadian designer Bruce Mau. Bruce is a critically acclaimed designer and author of MC24, founder of Bruce Mau Studio, and co-founder and CEO of Massive Change Network alongside his wonderful life partner BC Williams. Bruce and BC have been in Sydney for the past 6 weeks working closely with the team at UNSW's Arts, Design, and Architecture faculty on his massive action showcase, tackling some of the world's most pressing problems. I've long admired Bruce's work and resonated with his similar journey growing up in Canada in the 60s to starting out our design careers at Pentagram London and our similar ethos on the power of design to create a better world. He's a subject of a documentary in his life, an approach to design called Mao, and has worked with legendary brands, cities, and countries all over the world. Working with them on tackling thorny problems and transforming the way that they exist holistically. Hey Bruce, it is so cool to catch up with you today in Sydney. Good to see you. It's been wonderful to see you and to see the massive action workshop that you guys did in uh, UNSW here in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Spectacular! You talked me through uh, the exhibition, the process, uh, all the all the work that was done uh, over what was it, a few a few weeks of work.
1: Yeah, four weeks. Yeah. Wow. Um,
0: so how how did it all start? Because I, I I went to a workshop of yours in Brisbane in uh, I think it was like 2013 or something.
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh,
0: um, massive change. Was the what it was all about? Um, this one in Sydney's massive action, and
1: how did the whole massive
0: action and change come about?
1: Well, we did massive change as a project in two thousand and four, mm-hmm. um, and it really was about our capacity to shape the world. It was basically saying, look, um, design is much more, uh, you know, it's much, it's much more than just our um, the way things look, it's really yeah. about our capacity to produce our future. Yeah, you know, and, and the way that we live, um, and it's really um, you know fundamental to our our success as a as a society and a species, um, and especially our ongoing um, you know place in in our ecology uh, and our you know our, our future on on Earth, um, and so. But when we did massive change, what we discovered was that people were really inspired. You know, it was very successful. But w- what they really wanted to know was how to do it. They, they, you know, at the end of the exhibit, um, we there was a space for them to kind of a- ask questions or give comments, and the and you know overwhelmingly it was you know we're inspired we love yeah. this, but we want to do it. How do we do it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and we realized that we actually didn't know how to do that back then we didn't have the answer to that yeah Um, and that's really what sparked the creation of the of the mc24 principles which is really how to do it Um, and that led to massive action which is really the project uh, to to give people the capacity to design their world and their life Um, and that's what that's what we're doing here uh, with unsw and and here in sydney yeah
0: so cool catching up with you at UNSW earlier, uh, you in BC and and, and just walking around the exhibition space and, and seeing what you guys have done over the last month with uh, uh, the the college there spectacular. What what? How, do you, how does it work with you two? How do how do you guys how do you meet and how does it all work? You know, like it's I, I've I found it. I mean, I work with Luca, who's uh-huh. my son, uh-huh. but you know that can be hot and cold at times. But mostly <laughs> mostly good. How is how do you guys make it all happen?
1: Well, you know, BC has been in the work for the whole time. So even though she was a mom for a long time and really focused on that, um, she was always there as part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, And then as the girls got, you know, sort of more, as they kind of went off to university and uh, she got more um, liberated from that burden. Yeah. Burden? Burden? That's a burden. I mean, you know, the mom work was intense. Right. Um, so as that kind of diminished, um, she she took more of a kind of role in the studio. Yeah. Um, and, um, and we really, you know, she has the role of chief insights officer uh, is how we define it. And she has a kind of, you know, she comes from a much more literary, historical kind of, um uh kind of mindset yeah and so it makes a very interesting kind of collaboration where um, you know I don't have a kind of deep historical knowledge uh, or a real education I mean I my education was really brief it was only 18 months. Uh, She's hell. hell? What not I interview you for? She should have been on this she, podcast. Exactly. She's actually educated. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you're not. And I'm actually,
0: not. I did two years. That's close to 18 months. It's <laughs> just a little bit over.
1: Yeah. Um, so she has a kind of um, – but not only is she educated, she has a kind of um, really comprehensive knowledge of the history of culture. Yeah. So she can kind of place things historically – in cultural transformation, that is really super helpful. Yeah. So that when we're doing things, you know, if if I'm kind of inventing something, she can contextualize it. Yeah. In a way that is really powerful. It's um, kind so, of yin and yang. Yeah, it's a collaboration that is um, uh, is really extraordinary and uh, has been a a really important part of the of the work. I mean, what's the likelihood of that
0: happening in life? Did that happen by did that happen by chance or did you go you know what I gotta go out there and find someone really smart to make me look good because I'm a fraud no <laughs> I'm just a graphic designer <laughs> no I know well was no, it just by I, chance? I mean, it's been
1: yeah it just is um you know it's a it's an extraordinary uh, relationship and um you know I when you know the Moment that I met B.C., like I, she came to lunch at the studio with a friend, uh, a friend of mine, and um, when I saw her come to lunch, I thought I'm kind of hungry. And um, <laughs> well, your eyes still light up when you talk about it. And uh, yeah, that's for sure. That's um, and I, you know, I, I, rem- I have a very vivid memory of the lunch, but I don't recall Steve being there. <laughs> 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 um, they weren't uh, together. I hope. No, 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 oh, okay, uh, you no. Know, she was just visiting. You know, he's just visiting friend. Um, and uh, we have. I mean, it was a. It was. It started. Uh, you know, it started a great adventure, and we celebrated our thirtieth anniversary here in, here in Sydney. Oh wow! So congratulations. Um, yeah, you know, three decades. It's been an incredible, incredible adventure. Well, it's
0: incredible, and I think that. Let's talk about, let's go back to your childhood because obviously um, we're not born designers. Yeah, we, we we come from somewhere and our upbringing is very instrumental into the people that we become and, and our view on the world. Uh, we have very similar kind of backgrounds. I was brought up in Canada, you two, and uh, we went to Pentagram too at different times <laughs> in London. And so it's really interesting. And also that just kind of this deep down desire that I wanna help help people, I wanna uh-huh. help individuals uh-huh and organizations to be the best they can be. My whole business is about designing a better world. With each and every opportunity that we have, I want to be doing the right thing. But it's interesting that not everybody thinks that way. And you, I kind of presumed that every designer had that same kind of determination and, and uh, you know, wanting to do that. Not because of the, the now, the massive uh, trouble that we're in as a, as a country, uh, as a, in the world. But let's just talk about yeah, what made you what you are today. Like, how did it all start?
1: Well, I grew up in you know in a uh, on a farm outside of a mining town in northern Canada, and uh, you know there wasn't a lot of talk about design, no. <laughs> as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, we lived. Um, you know, our house was on a rocky hill, uh, which meant that you couldn't get running water in the house uh, during the winter months. Wow. So my job as a young man was to go to the well. Uh, on my snowmobile during the winter and provide water to the house every day uh, before I went off to school and um, and that experience you know when I you know as I grew up and I eventually went to college and uh, became a designer um, I thought that those two worlds were kind of separate worlds that my mm-hmm. life on the farm was my you know farm life and my life in the city was my d- yeah. kind of Urban life and design life, and that they were completely different worlds. And but the more I worked, and the more I got, especially the more I thought about um, uh, designing uh, in a bigger sense and massive change, uh, I realized that actually that experience of of providing water to the household uh, was some was an experience. First of all, that I share with about a billion people. Yeah. So about a billion people don't have access to water. Um, and I, I really understand what it takes to do that, you know, just the kind of physical work and the weight of the water and, you know, just how much it takes uh, and what it means to have to do that every day. Um, and that kind of empathy in in some ways is at the core of design practice. Like what you're describing, caring about people, that's what design is about for me. Like the the core methodology of design is caring. Yeah. And it's why I think so many designers are involved in the big conversations of our time because yeah. if you care about the individual, the you know, the user, we talk about, you know, user-centered design. If you care about the individual, you can't have a healthy individual, a thriving individual in a toxic community. So you have to care about their context. If you care about their context, you can't have a thriving community in a toxic ecology, so mm. you have to care about their ecology. Yeah, and so all of a sudden you're actually thinking about the person in context of the ecology, and that takes us to what we call life-centered design, really thinking about designing for life and not just for the person. Yeah, and really shifting our whole kind of orientation uh, to caring for. For for country, as you would say in Australia, yeah, yeah. but caring for life, uh, you know, as, as as we say it, um, and but I think that you're absolutely right that ultimately, it's about caring. That's the real kind of methodology of design. Yeah, all the things that you kind of, told love,
0: empathy, caring, looking out for each other, you know, the whole kind of philosophy. Of what goes around comes yeah. around. You know, give and take. Yeah, doing good.
1: Design is a
0: yeah, it's become more and more of uh, people are kind of getting it more than ever before. It used to be seen as hokey. It used to be seen as alternative. Yeah, yeah. And that's become the norm, right?
1: Yeah, and, and design is how to operationalize that. Yeah. Right? Like design is a method yeah, plan. for caring. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, caring is, a, is an emotion. Yeah. Design is a method. So design takes that emotion and makes it a method and, and gives you a way to do it. And when you look at the outcomes, um, you know, I had to do a lecture on the Cooper Hewitt collection, the collection of the Smithsonian, on Mm -hmm. the design collection. And I was trying to understand, you know, because they have, in their collection, they have every conceivable kind of design object. And I was trying to understand, you know, what is the commonality? What what do all these different things have in common? And I realized the common denominator is caring. Mm. That a great design thing the de- the thing that separates it from other things is that someone cared more and they were able to kind of translate that caring into the into the object into the yeah. system
0: right interesting do you think that snowmobile that you wrote was someone had the same kind of approach to design think, and thinking i'm actually caring about this young kid <laughs> or uh, you design transport that works in that environment
1: I mean, all the if you think about the way that you live, you live a designed life. Hmm. Your life is really kind of defined by designers. So, so the kind of experiences you have, you're inside of a designed environment. You're interacting with designed interfaces. You're working. You're you're driving designed products through designed infrastructure. Uh, even your interaction with uh, with the natural world is often an interact uh, designed interface. Yeah, you know, it's actually it's actually a designed. Like someone was telling me that they went to the to the Blue Mountains. A lot of it was inaccessible because of because of the mudslides and yeah. and that the trails were off limits. So our designed interface was broken. Yeah, right? so we couldn't have our our natural experience saved your life, but yeah, because uh, <laughs> you know we because it had been uh, damaged, overcautious so, probably. So we actually designed that interface, yeah, um, and that's really um, so that means that we need to think about design in this kind of holistic way. To say yep. well, actually, since our life is designed, we can redesign it, yeah. Right? Since it is designed, if we're not happy with the design, if we're not happy with the especially the implications of the design, the, you know, the, the kind of unintended consequences, the environmental costs, we can redesign it, we can change yeah.
0: it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I totally agree with you. And, and when, I mean, we're, we are, um, obviously, you know, I did a book called Design Your Life back in 2014, and this podcast is Design Your Life, and I passionately believe that us as human beings have the opportunity to design our lives, to actually design a better life for ourselves, because we're, unless we do that, unless we find the thing that makes us happy, gives us joy, gives us a purpose, um, you're kind of like living day to day by by hope and chance, you know, you might not have connected with the thing that you love, and that's mm-hmm. so, so important for all of us, and to have a life of purpose makes a massive difference. We're fortunate to have found that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many people, you might have found that when you do mm-hmm. talks, people come up to me afterwards and say, hey, you know, you're lucky you've got great work. You know, you do great work or you have great opportunities. Like, oh, it's not by chance that it happened. You know, it's not by magic <laughs> that it happened. You too have uh-huh. the opportunity. Uh-huh. What is it that people in your experience that people feel that they that they don't have that opportunity or maybe they haven't found the thing that they love deeply, you know,
1: the thing they connect with? It's a very interesting question and one of the principles, one of the MC24 principles is work on what you love. Mm. And that That was the, it's the last principle in the book. It's, um, for the longest time, I wasn't confident that it should be a principle. Yeah. I I thought, you know, maybe it's just too sentimental. And, um, but in the end, I realized it's maybe the most important principle of all. Yeah. Because uh, it's the one that almost all students ask me about. They don't use the word love because it's too, too uncool. Yeah. Um, But... What they want to know is, how do I get from here to there? Yeah. Like, they can see that I have somehow figured out how to have a life of ideas and beauty and questions and, you know, kind of imagination. And they want to know that's the life that they want. They, that's what they signed up for yep. when they kind of went into design school or art school. Um, and that's what they're trying to get to. Um, and they want to know how to you know how to get there and um, you know in 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 that chapter you know essentially what I outline is um, the idea that um, that you have to put out a pure signal because ultimately what you really have to do is figure out what your signal is yeah like what is your message so that people can find you right so Because you want to do something. You have a voice. You have an idea. You have a kind of sensibility, a message, uh, a kind of way of seeing things. You need to put that into the world in a pure enough way that across the world somewhere, there's a person out there who's trying to do something. And you're exactly the right person for them. And they need to find you. And you need to find them. And they'll only find you if you put out that pure signal and the more you compromise it working on things that don't have meaning working on things that are in some cases you know contradictory yeah compromised um, you know compromised uh you know muddled in some way um it makes it harder for them to find you yeah and so you have to design your life to allow yourself to do those things yeah and it's a very challenging thing to do. I mean, in my case, you know, I lived like a student for decades in order to do that. Yeah. And I lived very, very modestly so that I could put out that pure signal. And, and I designed ways of working with clients. You know, I had a client um, in Toronto that was a new, new music concerts client. They had very little money. They needed posters. Yeah. I said, look, I'll do them. You can only say yes or no. You can't change anything, yeah. Because right? you don't have enough money to change them. Yeah, yeah. And you're not paying enough. So if you if you say no, I'll do another one. And if you say no again, I'll do another one. Mm. I'll I'll do another one until you're happy. Yeah. Until you say yes. Uh, but you can't tell me. You can't give me any advice. Yeah. You can't say make the type bigger. <laughs> yeah. Change the color. You can't advise me in any way. You can just simply say yes or yeah, no. Yeah. And um, they said yes every time, and I did some of the best things I've ever done for them. Wow! Because I had the freedom to do it exactly the way I wanted to. Yeah. And people saw those things, and they—it led to other projects. You know, it, it kind of connected. Like was, it, I, was it right for them? It was perfect for them. They love them. Yeah. they love them.
0: So um, you didn't just impose that on them.
1: No, I did what I thought was right. Yeah. Um, I did the best I could, um, and they love them, and it was, uh, and I've since done that for several projects, I, and, and in some ways I, in some ways I kind of do that for all the work I do. I do the best I possibly can, um, and um, now you know the projects now are so much more complex and you know, yeah, yeah. it's not just a poster um, but uh, so I, I need advice you know I need advice of all kinds for the project I do now um, but that concept of actually engineering a way to to do your best work that's the I think that's the kind of that's the key to getting a pure signal out Yeah, right? and and that's the key to finding those people yeah, yeah. and i think that it's interesting there's the, i think
0: a lot of people also struggle at actually finding that thing in the first place like you, you know having that clear signal is mm-hmm. great once you've worked out what it is mm-hmm. but it can be quite hard to find the thing that you feel that you've been put on this earth to do yeah you know so people. I, I mean i guess my yeah. advice is just keep keep an open mind keep looking keep talking to people Observe what other people are doing. Yeah. You know, just know that it will come in time. Yeah. It will reveal itself yeah. to you, and when it does, it's an amazing feeling, isn't it? Yeah. It's like having an idea. It's I mean, I fell body. in
1: love. I fell in love early. Like I was, when I started putting images and words together, I just was enthralled with the yeah. magic of it, yeah. and the idea of creating things was just so exciting that, you know, when you put two things together, you get a third. Um, and, and that third is so unpredictable. Hmm. And it's so, you know, it's so creative and so uh, imaginative yeah, um, and so exciting. Um, and that really has been, you know, my whole life has been that adventure of, you know, sort of, Finding those, yeah, yeah. finding uh, you know, your finding way. Those things.
0: Let's talk about Pentagram because we, uh-huh. as I said, we both went there, but uh-huh. uh, we would have very different experiences. Uh-huh. Tell me what it was like for you because you went from Sudbury or was it uh-huh. Toronto, Toronto to to London. Uh-huh. I mean, how did that all come about, and what was it like for you? Because um, that's yeah. obviously at the time, the design, the uh-huh. design uh-huh. place on the planet, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was a, it was an incredible experience. I, um, you know, I had, I had a. Um, I had I had been working with um, a man in New York uh, had been doing some work for me, a man named Nigel Holmes, and he was the man who uh, made the kind of graphic identity for the visual identity for Time Magazine. Right. He did all the all the kind of infographics. Wow, incredible guy! And he was doing work for me in Toronto, ah. um, and so I got to know him. And when I when I Went to London. We went through New York. We went to New York and and then flew from New York to London. And and I stopped in to uh, see Nigel, and he sent a telex.
0: (laughs) Better explain what a telex is. He sent a telex to the... It's like Morse code.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Uh, He sent a telex to the Pentagram office saying, you know, this guy's coming over and you should see him. And so when I went over, I called the office and uh, arranged to have a meeting. To, and I ended up doing, I must have done like five or six interviews there. Wow. With different uh, people. Um, uh, and eventually was hired by David Hillman. Fletcher would have been there. Uh, I met Fletcher. I um, can't remember who else. Uh, John McConnell probably. And... Um, uh, yeah, John McConnell was Phil there. Theo Crosby. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't interview with Crosby, but he was there at Kenneth the time. Kenneth Grange. Grange yeah. was there. Um, and um, so I got. I got a job with uh, with Hillman, uh, and um, and it was fantastic. And the deal was, it was a very interesting model, which was you had only two years. Yeah. Never more. So you had. He was in the contract, wasn't it? Mine, yeah, it was two years. years and it
0: must have extended to three years when I joined. But really? Yeah.
1: At that time, it was two years in and out. And, yeah. And I don't think anyone had stayed for more than two no. at that time. No. Um, eventually, one of the guys who uh, was there at the time when I was there would eventually become partner.
0: John Russell. Yeah, John Russell. Yeah. And, he was uh, my the guy I worked with.
1: Right. Um, but he was, he, as far as I know, I think he may be the only one who did. Um But um, at least at that time, it was just, it was well understood two years in and out. What that meant is that you worked your ass off. Like you had two years to kind of build a portfolio. Um, And I loved it. Like Mm. I had incredible projects that I never would have had access to. No. Um, uh, But I had a lot of conflict. Um, And uh, David liked conflict. Yeah. Like, Like he. Uh, he loved it when there was fights. Yeah, like when there was, you know, almost fisticuffs. He's still around, so we have gotta be careful what we say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's a feisty chap. No, he. I mean, he's. He never trust this. Would me not either. come as this wouldn't come as a surprise to him. <laughs> I mean, he's, you, know, yeah. you know, he loved the conflict, and you know, he made. It Talented clear. too. Um, uh, I didn't. I did not. I mean, I didn't like that part of it, and um, um, and I didn't like the. For me, the, there was a kind of um, sense, uh, you know, it was by then really corporate. So it was, it was really working mostly for big corporations. And I, f- I got more and more the feeling that I was kind of building a cage that I was going to have to live in. You know, that I was kind of work- how, old, how old were you then? I was really young. I was like 21. How, how old 21. Did you know that? Why did you think that? I just felt like I was working for the corporate world and that world wasn't, it didn't have the interests of the, of the person in mind. It was really the corporate interests, Right, okay. Well, um, the, yeah. And, um, y- you know, I wasn't very sophisticated politically. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, and I wasn't deeply unhappy. Um, I was excited by, you know, I worked constantly. Yeah. I, I loved, you know, I loved working. I still do. Yeah. Um, uh, and when I, when I, uh, eventually, uh, when I eventually quit, uh, before my t- two years was up, um, uh, because it, the conflict with David was so intense that, um, you know, we were, we were going very different directions aesthetically. Right. And um, I didn't think that was healthy for the client. Yeah. That, well, he was the boss, though, wasn't he? And he was the boss. Yeah. So I said, look, yeah, yeah, this yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm going this way. You're going that way. You're the boss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. I oh, quit. <laughs> <the, laughs> screw the, you. The writing's on the wall. I was <laughs> <You know, it's laughs> like, I'm not going to win this one. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you should do the right thing. And I'm not, you know, I'm not in the right place um and he said look you know you um uh it was it was not the right time for me to quit so he said look you know i'd appreciate it if you would kind of finish what you're doing yeah um, so i stayed on to do the thing you know to kind of finish the projects that i was working um and um working on and and um and he said look i'll you know you do you know i'll, I'll back off you do it's better that you do the whole thing and um, and it has it have the kind of clarity that Amazing. Uh, that you suggest, um, uh, and so so I did that. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, I it, it was it was disappointing to me. In the sense that I had a kind of um, you know a, pentagram at that point had a kind of almost mythical yeah. uh, reputation to live up to. That almost no organization could live up to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, uh, and so, pressure. you know, it's not exactly surprising that it didn't. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I
0: had a. I was there for five years. Actually, I uh-huh. passed the three. I became uh-huh. associate partner after three years. Um, but I, I, for me, it was the most important experience of my life. So uh-huh. very different experience because uh-huh. you clearly knew what you were about and what you wanted to do way back there. I was like I had no idea what these guys were doing when I went there. I like uh-huh. what are they, what are, uh-huh. are they playing around with this stuff? What is trying to endlessly trying and changing and all that? And what it taught me was the power and the importance of getting it right. The big ideas, big ideas, and knowing when it's right. You know, and I think that. I hate the term graphic design. I hate that term like you do. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I find it really limiting, um, and yes, that is a profession, but I found I, I, I bec- I'm much more about ideas. I'm a, a creative connector. I'm someone who is uh-huh. a generalist, someone uh-huh. who's passionate about all ki- and any any problem, uh-huh. and it's like, was it the pentagram experience that gave it that us the insight for that, or was it just us, the way that we kind of brought up that's actually uh-huh. Uh-huh. made us feel like our purpose is bigger than Layout, our purpose uh-huh. is bigger than fonts. It's all uh-huh. part of uh-huh. what we do, but the bigger opportunities to use that thinking, that opportunity, the skills for, for bigger problems to be solved.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, like there's a big shift, and, and, and a lot of people uh-huh. think I'm crazy saying that because they still think you should be back at typography and layout and doing what you're good at, which is like uh-huh. design. Yeah. You know, do you know see, what I mean? See, I mean, it's. Uh-huh. it's, it's
1: yeah, no, it's, I, I totally get it. Um, and it also had I, I had, I certainly had that experience as well. Like I had it very in a very compressed time frame. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I had it in eighteen months, not five years. Um, and you've been competitive. <laughs> no, it just happened. Um, it, 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 had, it had a very intense, uh, and it it was a really important experience for me. I mean, uh, it was also, I think, for me, one of the most important experiences in my life yeah um in that sense right um the other thing that happened for me was that i you know i was in england for the first time in my life Mm. i was outside of canada for the first time in my life that's huge um i had no real experience with a class system no yeah so right um so all of that was totally new to me and um I, you know, had no idea what was going on most of the time. That's when
0: my parents emigrated to Canada to get away from the class system.
1: I mean, uh, I just didn't know, you know, I I just didn't know what was happening most of the time. Um, And I met two extraordinary people who both worked at Pentagram. Um, One was an artist and one was a writer. And they were both uh, brilliant. They were both politically tuned in. Yeah. In a way that I wasn't, you know, I, I really had, you know, practically no political kind yeah, of young um, and naive awareness. Um, I had never really seen the state exercise its muscle. Like in Canada, the state was so, um, you know, so kind of modest in its presence. Yeah. Like you know, with rare exception, it, it just didn't kind of assert itself, uh, especially in my experience. Yeah, it's right? a brilliant like, country. Uh, Um, And so, um, so, so coming to Europe and England, um, and kind of you know being exposed to it during the time during that time. I mean, this is Thatcher time. Yeah, the war in the Falklands. Yeah, uh, the miners. uh, You know, the the kind of firing of the miners. The homelessness was just the homelessness in London was off the charts. I mean, you literally couldn't move. You had to walk over people. There was a whopping
0: I strikes mean, as well, wasn't there? The yeah, I mean, it was strikes. it was unbelievable,
1: and um, and the clubs, you know, like Joy Division was, oh, yes. um, was it? You know, the, uh, Joy Big. Division was it was in the clubs, and yeah. that was the kind of scene. Um, and so I got kind of introduced into a kind of political scene that was very much at odds with the corporate world. Yeah. Um, and that was part of that kind of awakening for me to, to yeah. kind of think, "Wow, this is you know what am I what am I doing here and what am I part of?" So it, was it that it was not aligned? Yeah, that, that kind In of, the of misalignment. World. You know, the, the kind of like, what am I contributing to?
0: Yeah, right?
1: what am I working on? What am I? What What is? And for me, it was a very simple equation. I love working. I'm going to put my waking hours into something. Yeah. What is it? Yeah. And I want to know what those things are. Um, and so coming out of that experience, I started a company called Public Good. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's where...
0: Back in Toronto.
1: Yeah. I went. So I went back and with two partners, we created a, a little studio in Toronto called Public Good. And the idea was really the uh, kind of opposite of what happened at Pentagram, which was to say... I only want to work on things that I think are moving the world in the right direction, that are contributing to a a, a positive world. Uh, And it wasn't more sophisticated than that. It was, you know, we want to do public good. Um, And I remember at the time, it was so controversial. I mean, it completely caught us by surprise because we thought, uh, you know, how much simpler can it get? I mean, you know, we want to do public good. Uh, but designers that I knew told me to my face they thought I was insane. Yeah, they were like, "Who do you think you are? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. you can only work on good projects?" Yeah, and I thought, what a crazy question. Yeah, like, like that is an insane question to ask. Do you think it's the Canadian upbringing?
0: Because Canada's very generally, Canadians are pretty peace loving, nature orientated. You know,
1: I think it is part of. I think it is part of the Canadian John Denver culture. <laughs> was Joni Mitchell? Was she Canadian? Joni Mitchell's Canadian? John Denver yeah. is not He's the car American. park song. What was that called? <laughs> I mean, that
0: that's kind of like that has a peony. There was an okay. exhibition in Vancouver called the peony. I think it was like you had one in Toronto too. Uh-huh. A big exhibition, kind of the future of the world. Uh-huh. There's a lot of influences
1: there. That Expo '67 yeah. in Montreal. Yeah, yeah. no Expo '67 was huge for me. Yeah. Like, that really blew my mind, even though I didn't get to go to it. yeah, I just saw it on TV, and it blew my mind. And it was part of, I mean, it's definitely, like, a huge part of my imagination that, that I saw this world out there, yeah, and I wanted to be part of it. Yeah. Know, I wanted to get out there and be part of it. Um, but that idea of public good really came out of Pentagram, and it came out of my my experience with uh with John and Herman at Pentagram. John was a writer, Herman Hillman. was a oh, Herman. Oh, Herman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Herman Laley and, and John Ward. Right. Um and John um John became the my collaborator and editor on MC twenty four. Wow. Um I worked with him like, you know, well, forty years later on uh, on MC twenty four. But he was John was um, you know, he was a writer, He was you know, deeply connected to the kind of political realities in England, the you know, the kind of inequalities. Um, and uh, and he introduced me to, you know, to the kind of um, you know, political thinking that I hadn't really been exposed to in my life before. And Herman was an artist and Herman, um, you know, I thought Herman was the village idiot. Like, whoa! Like Herman would come to work at nine oh one. Wow! And he would leave at four fifty nine. And he would pat around in his sock feet. He was Dutch, and he would only work from the, <laughs> during those hours. And the you know, like the five o'clock came, Herman was out. And I thought, what kind of like what kind of designer doesn't work late? You know, like, yeah,
0: and all weekend and yeah. every holiday. And like
1: what kind of designer? And I didn't realize that Herman was an artist. He had a whole other life. He was friends with John Cage. He had a, an artist group called KLM. Uh, he was he oh, yeah. he was incredible. Like he had this whole other life. Was he linked with Rem Coolhouse? No, no, no. He, um, he, but he had, um, he just had this whole other art life. Yeah, and I discovered. I'm the village idiot. Like he's a genius. <laughs> like he's got his own body of work, his own life, his own creative life. Uh, working nine to five. I'm working twenty four hours for the man. Yeah. Uh, I'm not the get, hill man. Yeah, the <laughs> hill man. <laughs> like I'm working twenty four hours. Uh, you know, I'm pulling all nighters. Yeah. For for the corporate design job, he's working nine to five. And 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 sustaining his his outside creative life. And I realized, wow, this guy's really a genius. And um and it, it really you know called into question you know, that was part for me of discovering that wow, I need to really think about where is my work going? Yeah. What am I contributing to?
0: Yeah. Uh, that's funny. The most I ever did there, because I was the same. I was like there day and night. I remember doing two nights in a row, like literally forty-eight hours without sleep.
1: Yeah, no, I mean that's uh, that's what we were doing. Yeah, and but I, I mean I I loved it. Yeah, but but I was fucked <laughs> from
0: it. So this is kind of comes back to okay. So were you an optimist then? Then or were you like oh, yeah. screw I everybody? Mean, I got to get out of here. Were you optimistic then, or were you like you felt downtrodden or
1: no 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 caged, I, I you no know? not at all. I was very excited. Like when my friends in Toronto suggested we start something together, um, uh, I was super excited. And I thought, great, you know, we can do, we can do, we can use all this energy. Yeah. uh, Because we have a lot, like you take all that power, you know, all that creative energy. I mean, you, you think about your life and your creative energy and the time that you have to apply to something. Yeah. You apply that to things. Yeah. It
0: changes the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? So like, inco- what you can do in an hour. What you can do in a weekend. We can do I a- mean,
1: what we've done in the last month at UNSW, yep. like we've produced new concepts that could really transform the world. Yep. Like in in four weeks, you know, with a with a small group of people.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. and,
1: um, and it's really extraordinary. And so when you start to think like that, you realize when you start to apply that, you know, when you s- start to think about how you can leverage that, how you, how you can, how you can um, inspire other people to do the same, right? How you can, how you can get other people to do that. Yeah. Um, the, the impact you can have is really extraordinary.
0: So this is the thing which I want to talk about because it obviously is we've established it's about ideas and design. I mean, I believe everybody, every human being is a designer fundamentally. Every human being is creative, born creative. We're, we're the lucky ones that found a career out of it, and it's been a phenomenal career because our this career now today, we get tr- taken very seriously that we actually can come up with ideas that actually can improve things dramatically. And organizations, individuals, countries, governments are looking for those ideas. So ideas are powerful, and they really, really matter, and they can make a massive difference. The question that comes up all the time in everything that we do is it's like, okay, well, give me an example of where you have actually done that on a project you know it's good talking about it, it's good to kind of instigate you know the young talent and get them up to speed with understanding they have potential and the power to make a difference in the world for good mm-hmm. when you worked with coca-cola i mean coca-cola are still producing two hundred thousand plastic bottles a minute it's insane amount i mean I, I believe that they should be responsible for held responsible to go and pick up every single bottle that they've ever produced because they're still out there somewhere in the world, mostly in our oceans. You know, what did you do with Coca-Cola? Because obviously, that was the, when a, when a client such as Coca-Cola comes to you, and you're kind of wanting to do good in the world, you didn't just you you would naturally go, "Nap Coca-Cola is the enemy. I'm not going to work with them." Right? I, I would do the same. Tobacco mm-hmm. company or, mm-hmm. or certain companies mm-hmm. would come to me. I'd say, "No, I'm sorry, that's not how. I'm not I'm not interested in working for you." But there was a. I want to talk about. What? What? Why did you take it on, and what impact did you have on that organization? For obviously, uh-huh, for uh-huh. good, you know. Yeah. Because um, I think it comes down to like real examples of this actually working in in the commercial world. I mean, the commercial world is going to play a massive part in shifting and changing towards doing things better. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so yeah. we need to talk about those.
1: Yeah. No. No. Absolutely. And um, and it's a. It's it is a very complex um, equation. In other words, um, you know, when I was at Pentagram, I had a very simple kind of diagram. You know, corporate bad <laughs> culture good. You know, kind of you know that kind of diagram. Yeah. Um, as I and no computers. <laughs> and, and and before computers, yeah, know, it's hard to imagine. I mean, I can't remember how we actually got. Worked, you know, <laughs> I really can't. I can't recall. It was very we, physical, wasn't how it? How we did things. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but that kind of like that very simple diagram. Um, eventually, you know, we became much more nuanced about you know sort of how to actually change the world. Yeah. Um, and um, when it came to Coca-Cola, we realized um, that their ambition, first of all, was sincere so and for me that's that is really where we start like we have to know that that what you're really that what you're trying to do is actually a real thing that you really are sincere in what you're trying to accomplish and um, and there's no foolproof way of knowing that but you know mm. we have a we have a pretty good methodology for uh, for determining that um, with interviews and analysis lie detector tests uh, <laughs> in, in a way yeah. um, <laughs> Yeah, to kind of get a sense of you know, are you re- are you know, are you really, uh, you know, are you really committed to to doing this? And yeah. there you know, there's some questions we ask that, that get, can get to that pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so, are you really intent on doing it? Um, and then um, you know, what what are the implications of that? You know, what ha- what has to happen? Um, and um, and then secondly, uh, you know, what happens if we succeed? So, one of the methodologies that we have is called running the numbers, and um, and what we do is we basically just run the business as it is, don't make it better or worse, just run it for fifty years and see what happens. And um, the case in the case of uh, Coca-Cola, they would have put um, one point seven, rather two point seven trillion PET bottles in the landscape. Uh, uh, in, in the world, and left 2.2 trillion of them in the environment. If they had, if we didn't do anything, right? Right. so if you didn't do anything, just run it the way it is now, you're going to leave 2.2 trillion of those bottles in the landscape. Right? Um, and we said, you know, if you don't think that is a brand disaster, and that's not going to destroy the value of your 66 billion dollar asset, which is your brand, um, you're not doing your fiduciary duty. Right. You're, yeah. You have, as as the as the custodians of the of the business, you have an
0: you have an obligation to actually
1: yeah. protect that brand, um, and you're not doing it uh, if you if you if you ignore that. Um, and um, and so for us, the real opportunity was to say, um, how do we change that? You're not going to change it overnight, and you have to remember that. Um, you know, we think of Coca-Cola as a business, but it's not a business. It's actually an alliance of businesses. It's thousands of businesses around the world, yeah, yeah. Uh, and with very little actual control. So, the headquarters of Coca-Cola actually has very little control over what happens around the world with the Coca-Cola That's brand. Scary. Right? Um, so each each of the Coca-Cola companies around the world can can. Um, as long as you know like there are legal obligations they have contracts et cetera they they can't break those rules but um, but w- what they actually do is is really determined by each company, by each locale um, and so our job really is is to inspire them right so we what we have to do uh, is to actually imagine a better world, show them that world, and show them the pathway to get there. Mm-hmm. And show them that it's so much better than what they're doing now. Yeah. So you gotta, you have to s- sort of imagine this future, um, and say, look, this is, you know, a, a world where, uh, where, we're not doing these things that damage the environment, is truer to your brand. It's really true to what Coca Cola is all about. If you want to refresh the world, mm. you wouldn't do those things teach the world to sing. Yeah, you would never do you know that brand would never do this. Um, we're doing this by accident because we didn't figure out we didn't see it happening and we didn't figure out how to stop it. So so we have to first of all see it and we have to stop it. We have to change it. But how come they're
0: still doing 200,000 bottles a minute?
1: Because they're they're because you have to you have to change those things it means you have to actually develop new materials, which they have done. Yeah. So now they can actually, uh, they can actually uh, recycle those bottles in perpetuity. Right. So when we, when we uh, started, the PET bottle could not be used again. The material had a one-time yeah. use. Yeah. Right. The material they're now using can be can be made into bottles in perpetuity. Yeah. And it's actually being used for the whole industry.
0: Yeah. Right? Well, made so, into clothing and things like that as well. Yeah.
1: And so, um, so. You, you have to to think of it as, you know, you're not going to uh, shut it off. You know you can't turn it off and turn it on again in a different way. Yeah. You have to kind of know that you're moving it slowly in the right direction. And you have to come to terms with that kind of compromised uh, approach to change. It's not gonna be, uh, it's not going to be perfect. You're going to move it in the right direction, and
0: um, like, like California's banned the water bottle, for example, like yeah. the the or plastic bags as well. Like yeah. I mean, uh, there's yeah. there is sudden change when people say, you know, enough is enough and no more. Yeah. We could stop this. Like yeah. I don't, know. I kind of feel like they, they should. Uh, I don't know. It's one of the one of the world's oldest brands and biggest brands. With a secret recipe. <laughs> like who has secret recipes these days? Like uh, you can't uh, it, it can't be a secret. It can't be, you know, sometime in the future we'll get our shit together. But I mean, I just think uh, it's highly damaging the planet massively. Health wise too. It's that stuff is toxic. Uh, uh, it's bad for you. It destroys your teeth, your gut, you know, it does it does terrible things to your body as well as the planet and nature. Um, just talk to David Attenborough about that. Um it's interesting
1: kind of uh, it's I guess um, you know when when we did the work yeah because um, I worked with the head of global brand a guy named Mark Mathieu um, when we did that and um, and we did a program uh, the whole program was called live positively and yeah. it was basically to you know really comprehensively shift in this new way um, and um, when we uh, when we were finished the work we presented it at a uh, a brand conference in in New York big brand conference and a young man came up to the microphone after the presentation and he said if you really want to be sustainable why don't you stop making coke yeah okay. and um, Mark's Mark was kind of taken aback fla- flabbergasted by that un- understandably um, but I said you know actually that's not a world I want to live in like Um, I like having a coke and um, I don't want to define the the future negatively like I don't want um, you know I don't want to say um, you know like I love having a coke and I want to have a future where I can have a coke and I want you know my kids kids to have a coke I just don't want to do it in a way that destroys the planet. Yeah, and there's no reason we can't do that. Curr-
0: like, currently, we can't do that that it doesn't destroy the planet because it is right.
1: Um, well, I don't. Th- I don't think you. you I, I think you can. Like for instance, you know, ninety, over ninety percent, ninety-five percent, of all aluminum is recycled. Right. So all the all the cans that are are uh that are used for for the distribution um are being captured okay there's no reason we can't do that for the for the plastic yeah yeah. once you use the right material yeah which we now have right okay so there's no reason that we can't uh do the same for both materials right and um and we have to we just have to get we have to get there in the same way yeah just in the same way that in the if have to get there for plastic in the same way that we've done for, uh, for aluminum. And, um, and there's no reason that we can't, that we can't do that. So well, um, Let's talk about, I think
0: that what I discovered when uh, starting out in the early days as a designer uh-huh. is that I could see, I couldn't see the future,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> but I could see the future of what I was working on. So, in my mind, Uh I could see if someone came to me and they said, Hey, I got this brief, I got this problem, I got this thing I need to do. Already, as they were talking, I would start to piece together ideas, connect what they were saying with how that might look before Uh it became, you know, before we physically started to kind of put it down on paper and sort of make it. Uh So, human beings can. You know, it's like storytelling. You tell me a story, and in my uh-huh. mind, are all these amazing pictures, I can see the story unfold in my imagination. Uh-huh. That's something that each and every one of us has. Right? I'm not a freak. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I spoke to an architect <laughs> the other day, and he goes, yeah, I, I, I visualize, I, I see things in three-dimension. I go, what the hell do you mean by that? It's like, I can see in my mind design in three-dimension, in a physical space. Uh-huh. I was like, well, yeah, well, doesn't everybody? Like, uh-huh. some people... I thought everybody can see. In a way, you're seeing the future because you're seeing an idea that's going to become a reality before it actually is a physical thing. Or I, you can see trends. I don't know if you're the same. I, I feel there's a, there's trends. There's, I can see something, an idea that will come into market in a few years' time. You know, on the back of what you feel or what you sense or what you you know, you, we're incredibly sensory uh-huh. human uh-huh. beings, and we t- maybe we'll talk about designing for all senses as well. Uh-huh. But you know we're so much more powerful as individuals. We have so much potential to see a way forward and uh-huh. to actually act on that. And th- I uh-huh. think that's something uh-huh. that is uh-huh. within all of us. And I think that there's kind of like uh, I see that you, I'm see I'm using that on a very small scale. I'm see I'm using that tr- traditionally we're like looking at logos or brands or magazine or an exhibition space or whatever or a retail store and like you can see in your mind what that might look like. Uh, so do you have that same feeling or same
1: Well sp- one of the one of still? the um I mean one of the reasons that we did design for all the senses is that um you know we we really focus design almost exclusively on what we see. So we cut off the rest of the sensory being yeah. And I think it, it's really um, it really puts us at odds with life. Like if you think about how we interact with the world, um, if we only use the visual sense, it you get disconnected from the living world. Yeah, of course, because you don't smell things, you don't feel things. You don't have the kind of um, full body experience. You don't have the kind of yeah the the kind of visceral connection to the living world, and you you become capable, I think, of um, of awful things right. because you're because you're disconnected. Yeah, and, and you're, own, not you're only uh, visual. Yeah, yeah. And you and I think that the screen is very problematic in that regard. Yeah, that we. Um, it allows us to, to disconnect. You know, it allows us to kind of, it, it kind of pushes us more and more in the kind of disconnected world. Yeah. Um, you know, where it's it's one, single dimension, you know, single sense. Mm. Um, and um, and so for, you know, what we did here in in uh, Sydney, and um, it really was a beautiful experience. Where, you know, we worked with people from UNSW to um, to do a, a sensory, you know, kind of full sensory experience yeah. where people, you know, we we shut off the visuals. So we created a, a a blindfold where you can actually, um, your eyes are open, but you look at blackness. Yeah. So you don't, don't see any light, even though your eyes are open. Yeah. And um, To
0: heighten your other senses,
1: so that you can actually move your focus to your other senses and, and experience them. Yeah. Um, and people, I mean, the reaction that people have—like, a lot of people cried. The sound, the sound performance um, was was really beautiful. We had um, a, a composition and a performance with musicians, um, and live musicians and with a kind of intimacy that you've never experienced. I mean for the most part I mean it's, it's, it's so interesting cuz the musicians experience it every day because they have a intimate experience with an instrument. Yeah. Right? Like they're you know and but the vast majority of us don't. When when you go to a concert, uh, you know, a classical concert, the experience you have of of that concert is actually really poor. You're sitting a, a long distance away. Yeah, the sound is really poor. You can't smell them. You can't. Ha- you don't ha- have any real kind of. It, it, you know the the actual sound of that instrument, is really poor. Yeah,
0: you're not getting the uh, vibration. You don't anything.
1: have the kind of real. Um, yeah. Power of it. Um, when you when you experience it in design for all the senses. I mean, people cried mm. because... Well, my, one of my guys fainted, so that was pretty <laughs> <Fainted>. dramatic. <laughs> Poor thing. First
0: day as well. <laughs> you could say that in the next interview. Yeah. People cried. People fainted.
1: <laughs> I didn't want to bring that up. But, yeah. She, she but survived.
0: Yep. She's okay. Don't worry. You didn't even ask how she was. Come on.
1: <laughs> um, no, but the yeah. it's it's so intense when you when you really focus on it like when you allow it. Yeah. When you open the space for that experience. Yeah. Imagine what's like to be blind or deaf yeah. or both or yeah. imagine a world like that. And so um and so what we're really kind of proposing is to say look, we need to actually make design a methodology of the senses. Yeah. But all of our tools are for one sense only. Yeah. Graphic design. It's all visual. Yeah, color and fonts, yeah. shapes, and so. How do we begin to actually design for the rest of it?
0: Yep, yeah. um, uh, fullheartedly and intentionally. Yeah, and I uh, well, I think that, like, obviously, we practice that with our our teams, um, and obviously, when in the you know, architecture or interior design, etc., um, naturally is more so than our traditional graphic design. But I know. I know they're not in terms of. Customer experience and designing for real people. Uh, but they, they
1: almost all architecture in interior design is bound by the image. They render. It's all rendering. Yeah. It's nothing to do with the sound, for instance. No. The the feeling, the you know, I mean you just don't it's not about the experience for the most part. And so it's really about, you know, like if you think about the, you know, when if you're going to do life center design and put life at the center and really think about the experience and, you know, what it means to not put humans, not, you know, not privilege humans over every other life form and not, you know, Pass the cost on to somebody else, of you know everything that you do. um, It really is you know taking another.
0: Well, the incredible thing about design is it can always be better, can't it? I mean, every time you do a job, I don't know how many jobs you've done. At the time, you think this is awesome, <laughs> awesome right? Yeah, and a lot, yeah. Done shitloads, been prolific. But uh-huh. you kind of think this is it. This is the ultimate solution. And then uh-huh. you're like a year down the track, you know, a day down the track, you go, actually, I could have done, that could have uh-huh. been better. Or you go uh-huh. back to a project. Or you see things in the real world, and you go, you know what? That needs a redesign. And that happens all the time. You see more and more of that happening. Have you been
1: commissioned to redesign things that you've designed? Uh,
0: brands, we've had to refresh brands, yeah. Because uh, we've
1: had that experience. And, you know, the kind of unstated assumption when you start a project to re- redesign something yeah, is the last guys weren't that bright. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, Hang on, man. That was us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we didn't like, realize that. This, this time we're yeah. going to get it right. Yeah. Right? And when you when you're doing it to th- something that you designed, you realize, oh, actually... Uh, this is going to happen again. And that's why one of the principles is design the platform for constant design.
0: Yeah. Right?
1: That you are going to, that, that these things are going to be continuously evolving. Yeah. Right? So instead as the of, world changes to Instead technology. of thinking of it as trying to get it perfect and definitively right, yeah, build the platform that's built to evolve. Yeah. Knowing that it needs to, knowing that it's going to.
0: Yeah. What are you doing now? Oh, what am gonna, I doing? We're going to go have lunch in a minute. But what are you doing now? Generally, are you are you focusing on massive action? Massive kind of globally? action is
1: is, uh, is a big focus right now. Um, yeah. I mean that's the you know that's what we're doing here in Sydney with yeah. um, UNSW, um, and and we're kind of building a coalition around the world to to collaborate on that.
0: And what is it that? I mean, this is a question I constantly ask. I mean, I'm 58 next month, you know, uh, mm. so I'm getting kind of old. And, and, I, and I realized when I turned 50, and I've said this many times on my podcast, uh, when I turned 50, I really got, holy crap, I'm well over halfway, I think. Um, and, you know, when I was younger, those early days back at Pentagram, the whole, whole life ahead of you, thinking like you have forever to sort shit out, your life and, you know, doing projects. Now when you feel like, you ha- I feel like I have a, a certain period of time, I don't know how long it is, but it's shorter than it was before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a hell of a lot more, but I don't know, I still feel a lot more to learn. It's like, uh, I presume you're in a similar situation. We go, where do I put my energy today? You know, where do I put my energy as a human being into doing good, doing the right thing, using all that I know and I'm capable of, or my team and the people around me to instigate, to put put, put other my, my energy and my focus and people around me to doing good things. Do you feel the same way? Presume you do, right?
1: Yes. I mean, for me, the uh, life-centered design is really critical. Like to change from a human-centered focus, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, it's not about us. Like we have to change our understanding of where we are in the universe. Yeah. And you know, Copernicus happened hundreds of years ago. Right. He showed us that it's not about us. Yeah. Right? The, the the universe does not revolve around us. But we've been trying to prove him wrong ever since. Mm. And human-centered design is another example of that. And, you know, we've been working with um, a school in northern Canada called the McEwen School. It's a new architecture school. And I'm on the board of the school. I've been on the board for several years now. So six, seven years. And... Um, and it's a tri-cultural project with French, English, and indigenous leaders. Cool. And so I've been going up there and learning from these guys. Yeah. And what I discovered is that their cosmology is completely different. They don't put humans at the center. They put life at the center. Yeah. So they think – they actually said – you know, one of the guys said to me, we think we're related to the rocks and the grasses. Yeah. And, um, you know, we did a project in Panama – uh, with Frank Ehrie, a new museum of biodiversity. And we had this incredible experience. We went into the jungle with E.O. Wilson, who's probably the greatest life scientist of the last wow. half century. And, um, and Wilson said, uh, there's only one thing on the planet, and that's life. And life wow. has an experiment in form, and we're one of those forms. Wow. That's all. Yeah. And he said, um, rock is slow life, and life is fast rock. So you are you are rock animated with electricity, right? And when we turn the electricity off, you go back to rock. Yeah. So here you have the life, you know, the preeminent life scientist, telling us the same thing that our indigenous leaders are telling us. Yep. That we are related to the rocks and, and the, the s- grass. And the
0: same here with the Aboriginal and the uh, same elders as well, the caring same Caring for
1: country is telling us the same thing. Yeah. That. That we are related to the rocks and the grasses, so so we have to to understand our place in the universe differently, and we have to design with life at the center. But that comes from being
0: having a sense of
1: responsibility that that needs to happen, right? We have to change almost everything we do. Yeah. So um, it gives us a completely different kind of outlook on um, you know, and it it, it changes. So, you know, the way that we are, you know, like what we've been doing at UNSW, the way that we're, you know, talking about massive action is to say we have to, you know, when it comes to the the natural world, to the wild, we have to, to preserve, protect, and design the living world. So yeah. it's not just, it's not enough just to protect it. We have to actually pre- to design and expand it. We have to actually take responsibility for it. So that's on one side, and then the other, we have to actually redesign everything we do to be compatible with life. Yes. So every almost everything we do is not. No. Um, so we have to change almost everything. Yeah. And then finally, the the kind of foundational piece is to empower people with the capacity of design to give. Uh, you know, we're we're our our project with uh, UNSW is to is to imagine uh, empowering 100 million designers. Mm. Like imagine giving 100 million people the capacity to be designers. Yeah. We have no idea how to do that, you know how we're going to accomplish that. Yeah. But that's really the, the kind of ambition of Massive Action, to say um, we need to give people that empowerment, that uh, capacity to design their own life yeah. and the world around them.
0: I totally agree. I mean, and I, I think that obviously the important thing is to is people understand the potential of design in their own life, and are not being seen as an egotistic thing to do. You know that they actually they have to be the best they can be, healthy, et cetera, to enable them to tackle doing yeah. these tasks.
1: You yeah. know. Earlier, you mentioned accidental, right? That it's not accidental, and and for me, that's that's the kind of bifurcation. It's either accidental or by design. Yeah. Like you either allow for random events, yeah, or you Fate. choose design. Like you design Luck. outcomes, yeah. And the moment that you want specific outcomes in your life, you're a designer.
0: Yeah, you got to be determined. You got to be clear about the deadline, yeah. what you want to achieve. Yeah, whatever it is, that.
1: like whether it's a birthday party, yeah. you know, <laughs> like whatever the outcome is, the moment you have a specific outcome, you're a designer. Exactly. That's exactly what. Um,
0: that's why I did the book Design Your Life because yeah. I realized that I could take, you know, the d- design principles I learned in working on projects for clients that have a deadline, that have certain, you have a brief, etc. We take those very seriously every time, but we don't tend to take our life as seriously as that. Yeah, yeah. We put all of our heart and energy into uh, pleasing others, etc., giving out, and yeah. it's not until you hit a wall a few times that you realize you can't keep doing it. You've got to change. Yeah. You got to adjust. You got to you know yep. uh, design your life yep. have you designed your life brucey e?
1: um to some degree you know uh it keeps getting away on me <laughs> <laughs> i have to keep redesigning it yeah well
0: that's the beauty of life isn't it <laughs> yeah it's it's that constant uh adjustment constant channel learning is the kind of key thing to it all and, and all the people you meet through life is amazing life is phenomenal isn't it yeah Well, thank you so much, Bruce, for uh, coming together to have a chat today. All right. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Design Your Life with the legendary Canadian designer, Bruce Mao. Stay tuned for future podcasts, and thank you for the University of New South Wales for helping reconnect Bruce and I in Sydney, Australia. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.